Welcome to the Resilient Sessions mini-sodes. Over the next few minutes, Sai Harmer will tell his story. I really try to live my life like a bit of a thank you because I'm quite conscious about how I got here and who got me here. So living my life as a thank you is really quite important to me. I'm not always successful, but I really, really do try to, to sort of live by, by that thought. When I was at school, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I wanted to become a fireman. So I wrote to my local fire, fire brigade, which is Hampshire Fire Brigade, and asked if I could do my work experience uh, with them. And they wrote back and said, yes, uh, I got given a helmet and all the uniform, and off I, off I went for my two weeks' worth of work experience with Hampshire Fire Brigade. And uh, they used to chuck me in a vehicle, and we used to go around checking fire hydrants, which was just an excuse to keep me in the vehicle, really. And if there was a shout, then I'd have to go with them because I was in the vehicle. So uh, I turned up to some rather interesting shouts, which probably I shouldn't have been. It was probably against all sorts of health and safety, but it was uh, an interesting time for me to spend my work experience. Now, when I was at school, I, um, I didn't do particularly well, which was nobody's fault by my own. I was quite distracted just with other stuff. And I, when, when I left school, I realised that if I wanted to join the fire brigade, I would probably you know, need to go and do something first. So I had to have a plan B, which at that time was joining the military. So I joined the army as a, as a combat medic. And I did all the usual things. So, um, you know, I, I deployed out to a few different places. I went to Bosnia twice. I went to uh, the invasion in Iraq in 2003, followed very, very quickly by a deployment out to the Congo. I then became a recruit instructor, which is one of the best jobs I ever did. And then I found myself out in Afghanistan. One of the main things that I loved about the military was the fact that you could do sports or adventure training. So I really, really tried to avoid work and avoid wearing my uniform by doing sports. So in the, in the winter, I did cross-country skiing, which is skiing and shooting. And in the summer, I did triathlon and, you know, I just loved it. I did every type of adventure training you could do. Uh, so I really, really, really tried to avoid working if at all possible. I soon found myself being um, deployed out to Afghanistan. And, and that year was really quite a busy year for me because um, just before I deployed out, I got married to my wife, Marissa, in, on the 1st of August in 2009. Uh, we went on our honeymoon to Kenya and then I soon found myself out in Afghanistan. Now, before I got there, my job in my head was to sit in this great big massive tent and press a big red button whilst drinking plenty of coffee and eating donuts. And it would be my job to make decisions about what was going to be sent out onto the ground to pick up casualties. I never did that job, so it kind of remained in my imagination. As soon as I landed my boss approached me and said that they needed more medics on the ground and that was where I was going to deploy. So I asked where I was going and he just said that you're going to PB4, Patrol Base 4. So I thought to myself, it hasn't even got a name, it must be pretty awful there. And, and to be fair, it was, it was very basic. Uh, there was no running water, there was no electricity. We, we worked from this compound which was not far off the sides of a football pitch and, and surrounded by kind of 10-foot-high mud walls, and there was a few buildings inside. 
it was kind of the purest form of soldiering I've ever done. It was it was really dangerous. It was very hostile there. And as a medic, uh, you know, I worked I worked quite hard, I, 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 and I had to do my job out there as well. I'd been out there for about a month, and I remember being sat on my bed the day before we were going to go on quite a long patrol. And I sat on my bed. We didn't really use torchlight out there, so I sat with a candle. So it was quite late at night, and I remember I was on my own, and I was had a, I had a bit of a conversation with my grandfather, who at that point had been dead for about six years. So it was quite a, one, a one-sided conversation, and I felt that something was going to happen. I didn't know what, but I felt that something was going to happen to me, and and whatever was going to happen, there's it was some sort of test of my ability or character or something. Anyway, I asked him to look out for me and I felt that, you know, that he was looking out for me. And then I went to sleep quite, you know, content. I woke up really early in the morning, about three o'clock and grabbed my kit. So my weapon, my rifle, um, my body armor, my rucksack and my boots. And I didn't want to wake the other other guys up. And I went out of our little building and, and got myself sorted out. So I got my helmet on, you know. I got myself some breakfast, got a big, you know, big mug of tea, and then I went round to to join the rest of the guys at what we called the front entrance. And I sat sort of on my own in, in the dark, just listening to some of the guys talking together or having a laugh and a joke. And it, we soon all gathered together, and then we realised that our interpreter had decided that being in his sleeping bag was more important than going for a walk. So um, we ended up leaving a little bit later. Eventually he turned up and everything kind of changed. You know, the, our demeanour changed and we prepared ourselves to leave. Now everywhere we went in Afghanistan, you had to, to go in single file. And there was a guy at the front and he had a metal detector, which was called a Valen. So he was called the Valen Man. And it was his job to listen to this machine as he was swinging it in front of him to work out if there's anything buried in the floor, any metal, any metal parts buried in the floor. He also used his experience and knowledge and intuition to work out if something was buried there, you know, a bomb or an explosive device. So we all followed him. And as I pulled down my night vision goggles and everything turned into that really weird green haze, we set off. Now, I'd only got about 150 metres outside our patrol base when I activated an improvised explosive device. It threw me in the air and... I landed on the floor unconscious. And I remember being unconscious, actually. It was like being in the Millennium Falcon. That's the only way I can really describe it. And a few questions kind of ap- appeared in front of me. Am I injured? Is anybody else injured? And can I treat them? And then I woke up and instantly realised that, you know, my world had changed. So there was flashes of gunfire going on because there was a, a bit of a, an exchange in uh, the enemy was shooting at us and we were shooting at them. There was smoke and dust everywhere. And I could clearly see all my injuries. My pants and my trousers had been blown off. My my right leg would had been it was no longer there. My left leg was degloved from my ankle to my knee. I also lost my right testicle, which was irritating because it was one of my favourites. I damaged my right arm, so it was dislocated and broken, and it had shrapnel damage all down it. So I was in a really really bad way on you know on my own really, and I was kind of under no illusions about what was the the likely outcome so it took a bit of time for them to get to me because at that point I wasn't a priority 
there was loads of other stuff they had to put into place before they could even consider coming to me. But when it was my turn, uh, they had to get the Valorman back out again to clear a route towards me because they were worried that there would be another IED or an improvised explosive device between me and them. And actually there was. So I landed three foot away from another IED. One of the first guys that come to treat you are Royal Engineers, or he was he was there to come and sort of help me out. And everybody thinks that Royal Engineers like fixing stuff. They don't, they like blowing stuff up. And his in his rucksack, he it was full of plastic explosive. So if we'd moved in the wrong direction or if I'd sort of landed differently, it would have been a very, very different story. They quickly decided that they couldn't do much with me there, so they grabbed a stretcher, a kind of a fabric stretcher that you can just put into the bottom of a, of a day sack and they, they, they whipped me onto that. And as they were carrying me out, I was kind of watching the guy on the end. And I, at that time, I didn't realise that both of his eardrums had been blown out because of the explosion. He was hyperventilating and he couldn't balance properly and he fell over, which resulted in me falling out of the, the stretcher. There was a few... A words exchanged and they soon got me back into the stretcher and outside our patrol base, which is where, really where they saved my life. Um, the guys that, that got to me and started you know, fixing me up, they absolutely saved my life. So I was given cutting edge medical treatment, you know, tourniquets. I had needles drilled into my bones to give me drugs and fluids. What they did for me on the floor there ultimately saved my life. Now I said that our interpreter decided that being in a sleeping bag was more important than going for a walk. And I actually think that that saved my life because there's already a, a Chinook in the air, a, a medical emergency response team already in the air to go and pick up this Afghan national soldier. My wounds were considered worse. So they diverted the helicopter to me. And I remember it landing and I remember being lifted up and carried into, into the Chinook and as I was put on the floor, again, they just started treating me and making sure that everything was in place to get me back to Camp Bastion. Now, as I was on the floor, I remember looking for a friendly face because all the medical staff and the medical teams out there were my friends and colleagues. And I was looking for a friendly face because I wanted to pass a message on. I wanted to say, pass a message on to my wife to say, I'm sorry this has happened if I don't make it, crack on kind of when you feel you can. But I never I never actually saw that person. I never saw that friendly face. So in my mind, I, was, I kept on holding on until I, I saw that person. We soon landed and I remember being carried off. And the men that carried me off were the, the Camp Bastion Fire Brigade, which are all volunteers from the UK. And it was kind of, I, I remember in my mind thinking to myself, you're never going to be a, fire, a fireman. And it wasn't, there was no emotion attached to that. It was just kind of like a tick. You're never going to be a fireman. Right, next thing, move on. I was put into the ambulance, and again, I was looking for that friendly face. And, and eventually, I, sat, I soon found myself driven to the front entrance of the emergency department, which was the Camp Bastion Hospital. Now, I was in the dark at that point. It was pitch black still. And I remember moving from the dark to the light and being blinded by the strip lights that were in the emergency department. And as I got in there, I was kind of like descended upon like a team of locusts, or, you know, all the medical teams, all the, the doctors and nurses, and they started taking off my body armour, again, checking all my dressings and tourniquets and, and to start to prepare me to go through to surgery. And I remember 
I was holding on to the hand of this, in my mind, this beautiful nurse who kind of, I begged to put me to sleep. I later found out it was a bloke with a massive great big beard, um, a Royal Naval medic who we've chatted and uh, I was holding his hand and he looked after me until I got through to surgery. And, and for me, I was, that was the end of you know, my memory of being in Afghanistan. I was put to sleep. This didn't just happen to me. It happened to my wife as well in a different way. And at this point, she didn't, she didn't know it. Now, when this happens and something awful like this happens, they send someone to your house. In my imagination, you know, I can see this guy drive up to our flat, get out of his car, grab his suit and go and knock on our front door. Now, I'm eternally grateful that my wife wasn't in. At that time, it was, it was half term and she'd gone to see her parents in, uh, in, down in Kent. So I'm pleased she wasn't on her own to receive this news. My neighbours had come out because they'd seen this guy and they didn't know who he was and they were asking him questions which he, he couldn't answer and he drove off to my parents' house. Now, my dad, when he was alive, he was quite a pragmatic bloke and he saw this guy come down the driveway, open the front door and just said, give it to me straight, is he alive or dead? And, you know, fortunately I was alive. So they had to make a plan to obviously tell my mum and get my wife informed and then make a plan to get up to to Birmingham. Now, all this happened. I was injured on the Monday, and they were up in Birmingham by the Tuesday, and that was really like the start of my rehabilitation. And I remember waking up on that Friday morning and kind of that journey starting there. Now, I was in the hospital for about five weeks. I didn't stay there for very long, um, and there was a few kind of funny moments whilst I was in there, and, and one of them in, involved... A wheelchair. You're not really trained how to use a wheelchair, and, and, and neither was my wife. And a rite of passage in, Headley, in in Silly Oak was to go down to the Country Girl, which was a pub. So I got myself into this wheelchair, and Marissa started to push me down to the uh, to the to the pub. And we got off the pavement and across the road. And Marissa thought the best way to get up the drop curb was to race at it uh, as fast as she could. And the front wheels hit the curb, and I nearly, very, very nearly went flying back out of my wheelchair. It was, it was a very scary moment. So I, I soon left uh, Selly Oak and, and found myself down in, in Headley Court, and, and I'd only been in in Selly Oak for about five and a half weeks. I had a bet with my consultant when I got to Headley Court that I'd be walking before Christmas, and actually, I did. I was up in on my prosthetic legs less than two months after I was injured albeit in a set of bars and albeit you know I wasn't allowed to take my legs home with me because I wasn't strong enough but I was up and I was walking and I was moving and after that it was like um it was a challenge for me to to do to do stuff and to find ways to do things that I'd done before whether it was swimming whether it was skiing whether it was walking um, I had to find ways to kind of move forward and, and repeat the things I'd done and that was my challenge so since then, since being injured, you know, I've cycled across America, team of eight of us. We cycled from San Diego to Annapolis in Maryland. We climbed over 100,000 foot, 12 states, 3,051 3, miles, and we cycled it in uh, seven days, seven hours and 38 minutes, not that I'm counting. Swimming's my thing now, and I, I love getting in the water, and, and it kind of makes me feel normal again because you can't really see what's beneath the water and uh, I've done some long distance stuff last year 
I swam Lake Windermere, which was 11 miles. It took me about just under seven hours to swim Lake Windermere. And for me, it's all about doing a challenge, but for a purpose. So I always do it for charity, raise money for charity. And, and uh, I feel like I have a debt that I have to repay all those organizations that have helped me. I want to finish with one, with one thing, and, and that's the idea of being thankful. For me, it's about thinking about everybody that's helped me. So from those guys that carried me off the front line, the pilots that flew in to come and get me, all those clinicians from all over the world that helped me and saved my life in, in Camp Bastion, the 50 people that gave me their blood because I bled out. So I was given 50 units of blood. That's 25 litres, and the average male's only got kind of six to eight litres of blood in them. I'm eternally grateful to all these people, and I feel it's my responsibility to, to try and live my life in a thankful manner because I didn't get to where I am now without their help and support. And, you know, it's really important for me to acknowledge that. And the final thing I'll say before I finish is if it wasn't for my wife, Marissa, then I don't think I'd, I'd be in the, in the situation I am in today, you know, with a lovely family. So I've got three children, my daughter, Sophia, my little boy, Leo, and my little one, Amelia. So they're the kind of reasons why I get out of bed in the morning. And that's my story. If you've been affected by any of the issues discussed here in the podcast, then please have a look at our webpage or show notes where you'll be able to find more information. Thank you for downloading this episode. And why not subscribe and share it with your friends and family? You never know who it might help. The Resilient Sessions has been inspired by Making Generation R a campaign which aims to create a generation of resilient people across the UK. The series is brought to you by Blesma, the limbless veterans charity, and is based on an original idea by Cy Harmer and The Drive Project. The Resilient Sessions are supported by Openreach, produced by The Drive Project, and with thanks to Facebook. <laughs>